Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. And welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. Uh, My name is Dan Ashley, the evening anchor of ABC7 News in San Francisco, and also a very proud board member of the Commonwealth Club for many, many years. And I'm also happy to be your moderator today. So thank you for tuning in. Uh, We promise a very informative, lively conversation. As the club continues to host virtual events, uh, we're grateful for the continued support of our members and donors. Please, when you have a moment, visit commonwealthclub.org to learn more about membership or support the club right now. Remember, it's a tax-deductible gift. By clicking the blue Donate button on your screen, uh, the Commonwealth Club stands for Open, Fair, and Enlightened Conversation. And if you've been with us before, you know what we are all about, and we appreciate uh, your support always. It is my great pleasure to introduce General Stanley McChrystal, the author of Risk, A User's Guide, which is just a terrific uh, book on many levels, and we'll talk about it in depth here today. General McChrystal is a registered, pardon me, registered, I I suppose he is registered too, but he's a retired four-star general, former commander of U.S. and International Security Assistance Forces Afghanistan, and former commander of the nation's premier military counterterrorism force, Joint Special Operations Command. Throughout his military career, General McChrystal has uh, commanded a number of elite organizations, including the 75th Ranger Regiment. He was also appointed by the President of the United States and the Secretary General of NATO to lead and oversee more than 150,000 troops from 45 allied countries. General McChrystal is currently a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs and co-founder of the McChrystal Group, a leadership consulting firm. A reminder, if you have a question for General McChrystal, uh, please submit those in the chat and I'll try to get those to the general. General McChrystal, what a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you for joining us today. Dan, it's entirely my pleasure, and please call me Stan. Oh, you're kind. Thank you very much, Stan. That's very generous of you. You know, we have so much to talk about today, and I have been looking forward to this conversation for weeks uh, for many, many reasons. But I'd like to begin with the news of the day. Uh, General Colin Powell, who I know you had, I'm sure, close associations with and knew well over the years, I had the privilege of uh, doing an event Uh, with him, just like you and I are doing today, albeit in person, uh, nine years ago. And so I I enjoyed the chance to get to know him. Your thoughts today as we mark his passing at the age of 84? Well, pretty special. He had become a friend to me uh, while I was on active duty. When he was a four-star, I was a more junior officer, a major at the time. But then when I was commanding in Afghanistan, he would reach out to me as a retired general officer, just to provide a a hearing. But there's also a story years ago when he wrote his memoirs and he came out to Seattle, Washington to do a book tour and they were doing those book signings. And I was stationed out there in 2nd Ranger Battalion in Fort Lewis. My wife went to the book signing and it was run like you've probably been to some of these, Dan, where they've got handlers and you hand your the book you bought up to a handler who then hands it to the auditor and they say, don't speak to the author. Just take your book and walk away. Well, my wife, as they're uh, going through, she says, General Powell, do you know my father-in-law? And he goes, well, who's your father-in-law? And my father-in-law was uh, Major General Herbert J. McChrystal, who General Powell had worked for. And General Powell looked down at her and said, is this book for him? 
And my wife said, yes, it is. And he took the book back and he wrote a full page of inscriptions to my father. Oh my and it was just, I mean, I, I say that because we think of him as a general or secretary of state. He was a class act as a human being. You know, that was my impression when I met him. He was obviously highly intelligent, incredibly accomplished. But I, I also enjoyed in the brief time we had together, his sense of humor, his humanity. He, as, as impressive as uh, he was, as are you, sir, uh, you also had the sense that he was a regular guy in that sense as well, someone you could truly relate to. I think feet firmly on the ground and just he was more of a role model and a mentor to active duty younger than him than was apparent. But he would reach out and, and that was much appreciated. Do you wish he had run for president? Or are you surprised he didn't? <laughs> I think for him, I probably am glad he didn't simply because that's a tough role to take on. But for the nation, I think he would have been a superb leader. Hmm. You know, and I know there will be a lot of talk today about uh, that speech he gave to the United Nations uh, regarding Iraq and Saddam Hussein's at that time purported weapons of mass production program, which turned out not, not to be uh, as accurate as uh, one would have hoped. How much should that define his legacy? Because he had decades of uh, exemplary service to the country, and he even called that a blemish. I think everyone in life, I've certainly got blemishes in my life, and yet I hope that people will take a cumulative look. If we look at Ulysses Grant, he was an alcoholic and a failed farmer and a failed a shopkeeper before the Civil War, and then he got caught up in corruption scandals, not him personally corrupt, but during his presidency. And yet, I think if you step back and look at the sweep of the individual, I think we can take a a better view. I think it was Frederick Douglass who once describing, the, I think it was the, the Scottish poet Robert Browning, he says, we have to learn to take the good about people and be able to ignore or separate the blemishes because otherwise we will just fail to capture what is good in so many people. Uh, well said, and and uh, from your perspective, and, and I think many others who, who certainly admired Colin Powell, that's one incident that uh, perhaps was not his finest moment uh, that, that you would hope would not color an entire career. Well, that's right. And we also need to step back and take a, a lesson from it. You mentioned that, you know, We've written this book, Risk. One of the great risks in our society is that good people with good intentions working hard don't automatically produce the right outcome. You can have a lot of the right things. You can have a great secretary of state in, in Colin Powell. You can get some forces working and you can make mistakes. Good people make mistakes. And I think we need to understand that. And that doesn't make them bad people. It makes them human. Very well said. Let's talk a little bit before we move specifically into the book. There's many topics that we can talk about today, but I would love, uh, Stan, and you're kind to allow me to call you that, um, to talk a little bit about Afghanistan and the recent events in Afghanistan. And, and let me begin with this question. Were you surprised at how quickly uh, Afghanistan fell after American troops withdrew? Dan, I wasn't surprised that it fell quickly. But I can be honest, I wouldn't have been surprised had it lasted much longer either. The reality is, once the United States made the firm decision to withdraw, and, and it was clear to the Afghan people, their last pillar of confidence was taken away. 
They didn't have great confidence in their government. They had some confidence in their military and police, but not enough. And they didn't have confidence in their future. They were convinced that the Taliban had become inevitable in terms of taking control. And so I think what you saw was a manifestation of everybody had just made this reluctant accommodation to the reality that their government wouldn't survive. It had been in the press. It had been part of an information warfare thing. And if you hear that long enough, you believe it. And so once the collapse started, I think it was viral. Uh, and, And inevitable in that sense. Why, after 20 years, why was it still so unstable? Why was the government, the Afghan government, sort of doomed to fail? Yeah. Lots of reasons, Dan, and what I say will automatically be an oversimplification. In 2021, when it fell, Afghanistan had been at war for 40 years. Now, stop and let that sink in. 40 years, that's really two generations in most people. It really, in the early 1970s, started with a move toward socialism, which then created the Soviet intervention, then a decade of fighting against the Soviets, 1.2 million Afghans killed during that period. Then then there was a civil war, and then the Taliban came in in 1994 and took over in 96. And so when we went in in 2001, they'd been torn apart for 20 years. Then we arrived, there's this brief respite after the fall of the Taliban government, and then the Taliban start reemerging. And so you have just short of 20 more years of conflict. Afghans are exhausted of war. And also the, the normal fabric of society is, is torn asunder there. And so I think what we find is you've got a, a reality that Afghanistan is very different from it was in 1973, but it's also very different than it was in 2001. The 20 years at which we put so much effort and so much treasure in did produce changes in Afghanistan. There are more females educated, more young people educated. There are a lot of things that are different. But the reality is many of the things where we needed to sink deep foundations in for the legitimacy of their government, an ability to take on corruption and all, just hadn't gone deep enough and and just weren't solid enough. And so, but I put it against the backdrop of so many wars. It um, It's more understandable than we might realize. In that context, clearly. Uh, should we have withdrawn, A, and B, should we have withdrawn in the way we did from your perspective so quickly? Um, the answer is, Dan, I don't know. Um, if they had asked my opinion on whether we should withdraw completely, I probably would not have, but I was emotionally wrapped up in Afghanistan, so I'm not the least biased person around. I think President Biden was faced with a hellish decision because President Trump's administration had made the Doha Agreement, which set a 1 May 2021 full withdrawal of American forces. And on that basis, the Taliban had not attacked Americans for more than a year. And so there'd been no American casualties. And if President Biden had decided to abrogate that agreement, and say, no, we're staying, it's clear the Taliban would have felt absolutely empowered to start attacking. So then President Biden is faced with these two choices. If he pulls out entirely, a certain percentage of people are going to condemn him for that. If he leaves forces, other people are going to bring up the mantra of the forever war and how long will it go on. And so 
it was as tough a decision as a president faces. So while I probably wouldn't have made it, I I really uh, respect the courage to make a tough decision, knowing that he was going to be condemned either way. Mm. Yeah, it was almost a no-win decision in many respects. This is, uh, again, we're speaking with General Stanley McChrystal. Uh, Stan, this is a laughably simplistic question, but given our remarkable um, military, the men and women who serve, our uh, our power and superiority in terms of equipment and everything else that, that makes up our military, why was it so darn difficult in Afghanistan? Yeah. Well, go back, uh, Dan and I, you and I are closer in age. We go back to Vietnam and you say, well, we actually had this extraordinary military during the Vietnam War. And it was a very different war, but the reality was it didn't end in the way we wanted. These wars are not about who's got the most airplanes, who's got the most cannon, who's got the best trained soldiers. They are about winning, the convincing the population that you are going to succeed, which means you've got to build a government that the population views as legitimate. You've got to provide security. And during that period, you've got to fight off insurgents. And the insurgents really only have to create enough insecurity to convince people that you're not able to do that, you and your your host nation partners. We suffered from a number of challenges. One of them was proximity. The the Taliban had cultural and physical proximity to the people. They're always there. We could secure a, vi- a village for six days a week and 23 and a half hours on the seventh day. And if they come in for 30 minutes and they go, if you cooperate with the Americans, we'll kill you. The people in that village have to make the assessment that they're not safe. And so they do. And it's, it's understandable. And then we were foreigners. We didn't speak the language. And we made a number of mistakes. But we did a lot of things that were good, and we did almost everything I saw was with good intentions and good effort. And so I don't think we should condemn ourselves for being stupid or uh, of malintent. I think we should just look at how well we operate as a whole of nation effort and really a whole of coalition and say that if we can't get a more synchronized and coordinated approach, these kinds of efforts in the future, and there probably will be some, uh, will will always be really challenging. A couple more questions, and then we'll move on, uh, Stan, if we can. You know, it occurs to me, and I've, uh, with my limited perspective, I've explained it this way. Imagine uh, the challenges another country would have uh, occupying the United States and the ongoing resistance that that they would face. Uh, it, it it simply would be almost impossible. Uh, to, to, to quote unquote conquer us in that way. And, and uh, so one can understand, of course, it's a sort of a hydra headed monster in, in Afghanistan, many different uh, reasons that you've outlined. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious as to whether you think we might have to go back into Afghanistan. I guess the first thing I'd go back then, and one of the advantages we had in Afghanistan is we weren't an occupier. Now, the Taliban tried to portray us that way, but we were a 46-nation coalition, and 46 nations can't agree to occupy anything. Uh, and, and so I don't think that that was a particularly powerful argument that they used against us. I do think that they said that the, the government of, of Ashraf Ghani and before that, Hamid Karzai, were puppets of the Americans. And so that's a 
pretty easy argument to make. Um, but I don't think really the people thought that we were occupiers. The question whether we go back, I don't think so. It's possible that Al-Qaeda or ISIS will move back into Afghanistan in some numbers. But the Taliban are not an international threat, never have been before. They've been focused in. And the ISIS and Al-Qaeda, where they are internationally focused, they could also operate from other places and provide the same kind of threat to the United States. So I doubt that we will go in. There may be a requirement for some limited counterterrorism. But but that's the best my crystal ball will predict. And I'm not confident that that, that won't be wrong. Okay. Well, well okay. Uh, you mentioned the, the coalition. What is it like? Just describe briefly the 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 awesome responsibility, but also the privilege and the challenge of overseeing 150,000 troops from 45 or 46 different countries. That's a big job, Stan. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating <laughs> job. Imagine every country fights differently. And so the capabilities of their military are different. Some of them hadn't been to war since World War II. And so the United States has been to war a lot. But some of these countries hadn't been since World War II, so they were really trying to sort of figure it out again, particularly some of the old Soviet bloc countries that had joined us. Many of them sent a small force, a battalion or less, and their leader would be contacted by their head of state, their prime minister or president on a routine basis. So imagine a fairly junior military leader getting a call from the head of state. And sometimes that head of state would say, don't have any casualties. We can't stand the political. And so you have all these different dynamics pulling them. We have different languages. We have different focus and these dynamics pulling them. But what I'll say is I was surprised how much the members of the coalition wanted to be team players. I was warned before I took over. They said, yeah, you're going to leave this big coalition. Nobody will want to do what you want them to do. I didn't find that at all. I found they wanted to. They had different levels of capability. And then there were the problems of language and interoperability of equipment. But I never had a problem where I thought that the soldiers on the ground and their commanders weren't trying to be good members of the coalition. It's fascinating. There must have been, in all the time that we were there, how, how many months would you say you were in Afghanistan personally, boots on the ground? Oh, um, well, Ish. 13 for my last tour. And then for the previous years, from 2002, when I first went there uh, through 2008, I was there part of every year. I was probably there two months a year for those years. So for those eight or so years, I was probably there 16 months and then add another 13. So about almost three years, a little short of three years. That's not easy, is it? To be, I mean, just personally to be away from home that long and, and certainly for our men and women there for extended periods of time, it's very difficult work. Well, and we've got a small professional military. And so essentially it's the same people over and over. I knew a ranger, uh, Sergeant First Class, who was killed on his 14th tour of duty. Really? And so when you say he had entered the military just about 2001, and so his entire career essentially had been rotations to combat Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, wonderful soldier, and he died and left a wife and two young children. Um, that's hard not just to lose your husband, but that's a hard life. And so I really take my hat off to the spouses of so many service members who uh, who really just bore the brunt for so long. Uh, we can't 
thank them enough or, or express our gratitude uh, more profoundly for the sacrifices uh, you and all of those uh, men and women in our armed services make on a daily basis. I can't even imagine living with the stress of that 14 tours in combat. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a different sort of person that can do that. Well, think of the spouse. When the service members forward, they know when to be scared. They're out on a combat operation. There's something happened. They know when to be scared. When you are at home, you're scared 365 days of the year because you never know when your spouse is in danger. So the tension never goes up and down. And so for them to carry on lives and take care of families and whatnot is impressive. It is indeed. Well, you are, uh, as I said at the beginning, I think you are uniquely qualified stand to write a book entitled Risk, because you've certainly uh, faced a lot of it, uh, both physically and, and professionally your entire life. It's a, I have to say, it is a really interesting and educational read. I, I finished it uh, last night uh, after chewing on it for several days. And what it, it, it's a great title. It's a great premise. Why did you write this book? Yeah. And the title is ambitious because what we're basically arguing is everybody's a user of risk. We all live it. So it applies to all of us. There's not a place you can hide and not face risk. I decided to, to look at this along with my co-author, Anna Patrico, because I had gone through a lifetime of being taught how to calculate risk mathematically, probability, all the theoretical stuff about risk. But I was never in an organization where that is actually how decisions were made. They were always maybe data would be brought in and, and uh, probabilities, but decisions were made much more subjectively. And so I came away with the understanding that we really don't understand risk that well and we don't handle it that well. And so the first big conclusion of the book is the greatest risk to us is actually us. Because external risks, threats, things we can't do much about. You know, it's the meteor coming, it's zombie apocalypse, it's a financial crisis, it's all these things. We don't really control those, nor can we predict them with great clarity. And yet we spend an amazing amount of time and resources trying to do that. Yet what we don't do is we don't turn the mirror back on ourselves and say, what could actually help us most? And that is to build in ourselves more resilience, more strength, so that whatever risk comes, we are better postured to take it on. Uh, just as an aside, when the zombies come, uh, Stan, we're pulling you out of retirement. You're going to go on the front lines and, and lead us. Uh, uh, are, are some people better? Let me ask it this way. Well, are some people better suited to handle risk? And what qualities make someone a little more resilient to standing up to risk and, and assessing it and dealing with it? Yeah, I'm going to take this on two parts, as individuals and as organizations. The first is, yes, everyone has a personal relationship with risk. Everybody responds to it differently. Some people get frozen into inaction. Some people panic and run. Some people get very focused and effective. I mean, it's, it's a range. And part of that is our personality traits. And part of that is our experience base. What have you learned from people that mentored you and your experiences you go? And so the answer is, I think you can learn to be much better in the face of risk. And part of that is having been through a number of risks before. Organizations are almost the same. Organizations have a a relationship to risk. And we see many organizations that 
spend this tremendous amount of time to determine some of the big banks, the exact threats. We cover Lehman Brothers in the book, and we talk about the fact that Lehman Brothers had a chief, chief risk officer. Well, so did Enron. And in Lehman Brothers, they have this risk officer, and this lady is responsible for assessing and managing risk in this uh, big investment organization. And then they they keep her out of key meetings. They don't bring her to the meetings where key decisions are made. So in reality, what you find is you've checked the block. Yep, got a risk officer. But then you don't bring that consideration into the truly risk-filled decisions. How many times do we find our organizations unintentionally create a vulnerability like that? I would use COVID-19 as a tremendous example of a weakness in handling risk. You know, every once in a while, we we tell ourselves, well, COVID-19, a novel coronavirus came out of nowhere, so we have an excuse for not doing very well. Well, the reality is those kinds of coronaviruses come with absolute regularity. They are predictable, and some turn into pandemics historically. We know that. The second thing is we know what to do about it. We have experience in public health that we know what works against them. So we know that they're coming. It's inevitable, and we have experience what to do about it. And then this time, we had a scientific miracle. We produced vaccines faster than any time in the history of mankind. So those three things should line up and Dan and I, you and I should be having a victory party right now that we beat coronavirus because it's not that daunting an enemy. And it's a it's a great unifying enemy because everybody hates a virus. Nobody can like a virus. Right. And right. so we should have unified and fought it. And yet we dropped the ball. And we should look at ourselves and determine why we did that or how we did that. We didn't communicate well. We didn't have a clear narrative that united the people in our country or globally. We didn't overcome inertia to act when we needed to, because in a in a pandemic, you have to act early. You have to act before exponential growth gets in front of you. If you try to catch it, you can't. We have to have leadership that inspires people. There are all of these things in an almost every area. We didn't get it right. And so as a consequence, we've lost more than 700,000 of our fellow citizens most of whom didn't need to die. Uh, it, it's so true. And and the, the one thing that it seems to me we did get right was the medical community was able to develop vaccines and bring them to market, several versions of them, more rapidly than we've ever done. That went well. But as you point out, there was so much, there was some inertia, misinformation, sort of paranoia about it, the superstition about it, all kinds of things that got in the way of us acting in a unified way. And what I think is, since you bring it up, quite interesting, you begin the book with the uh, Crimson Contagion scenario of 2019, which uh, was a study, I'll let you explain, but it was a study just months before the actual pandemic began that that took a look at a, a possible scenario that might affect us uh, in uh, a simulation that turned out to be almost exactly what we faced months later. When we when we say we were surprised that a coronavirus showed up, well, actually, in 2019, the exercise Crimson Contagion was conducted by the Department of Health and Human Services. And it was actually four exercises under the same name, all connected together to pressure test our ability to respond to a potential pandemic. The scenario may be familiar to you. A, an American traveler to China gets infected, unbeknownst to them, 
flies back to the United States where his son picks him up at the airport. The traveler's not feeling well. The son is en route to a rock concert after he takes his father home. He gets infected. He goes to the rock concert and ultimately about 500,000 Americans die. The study finds that we have inadequate supplies of things like protective equipment and ventilators and whatnot, that we don't communicate well across the different public health departments in the United States. We don't make decisions well. And a 76-page after-action report is published that that, uh, carries all this in great detail. And then essentially no actions were taken. So what happened is we even exercised it and found we were weak and fixed nothing. And then in the moment when, when the actual COVID-19 arises, we make most of the same mistakes that we found. In- why, Stan? Why? why? <laughs> I know that's a big question, but... You know, I would like to say it's one person's fault. I'd find, I like to find the guilty person and point my finger at them. It's more than that. It is the fact that at the national level, we had conflicted messages, as you say. We had miscommunication, which undercut the legitimacy and credibility of messages. We had some quick action, and then we had some dilatory action we didn't take. Internationally, all the same was true. And then we didn't fight it as a single nation. We fought it as 50 states, or actually we fought it as many separate municipalities. And no organization at that level is has the expertise or the resources to do it. We essentially let all of our communities in the United States be beaten in detail. And as long as we are willing to let that happen, we'll never be able to stop an equivalent threat. Do you think we are better prepared for the next pandemic having gone through this one or will we face the same challenges? Well, it's a great question. Um, I would hope that for a similar pandemic, we will be better just because the muscle memory is so fresh. But I would argue that what we had to do for crimps or for COVID-19 is not much different than what you'd have to do from a major cyber attack to the U.S. or a major natural disaster. You have to communicate well. You have to have a clear narrative. You need to make decisions. You need to have leadership. All of those things are critical. And I'm not sure that those general strengthening of our what we call our risk immune system is being taken seriously. I don't think we're building our resilience. I could we could we defeat COVID twenty one, maybe, but if it's anything slightly different, I think that we'll find our risk immune system is just not strong enough. Well, uh, you know, the, during this pandemic, we have had taken vaccines. I just had the booster over the weekend, as a matter of fact. So I, I feel like my immune system has been further strengthened against COVID. But you talk about our risk immune system and how we have to uh, strengthen that. First, define, as you do in the book, what a risk immune system is, uh, Stan, and then the steps. And, and as you point out, we can, we're sort of talking about two different things, you, uh, how individuals can handle risk and how organizations and governments can handle risk. Uh, how do we identify the risk immune system? And then what steps do we take to, to strengthen it? Absolutely. If you think of any defensive system, it's not a single soldier or a single airplane. It's a system that has to work together to be effective. Our bodies have a miracle defense. And you say, well, what's that? And I say, it's our human immune system. Because every day we are assaulted by its estimated 10,000 microorganisms, any one of which could make us sick or kill us. 
And yet you and I don't get up in the morning saying, okay, human immune system, have a good day. We just take it for granted. Unless we get sick or something like HIV AIDS and our autoimmune system is weakened, in which case we're not killed by that. We're killed by some threat that normally our body would fight off. And what our human immune system does so brilliantly is it detects threats. It assesses each one, whether it's dangerous to us. It responds to them. And then it learns in the process. That's the the uh, the miracle of vaccinations. It gets It builds a defense for the next time. Our organizations, and I would say our society or our nation is just another big organization. We have the equivalent. We have a risk immune system. And in the book, we define it as 10 factors, risk 10, 10 risk control factors, of which I would argue that the most obvious is communication, the ability to communicate effectively, the ability to build a clear narrative, to limit our biases, to bring diversity in, to get different perspectives to get the timing right, to leverage technology correctly, to be adaptable, to have leadership. All of those work as a system. And so what we really have to do is strengthen the system so we're able to detect threats, assess them, respond, and learn. Organizations that exercise that, build that on a routine basis, find themselves extraordinarily more capable in the face of almost any kind of a threat. Uh, Stan, are there organizations that you could name or give us an example that handle risk particularly well? <laughs> I'm sure there are a number of them. I would say that no. I mean, there there are some that are very adaptable. There are some that are very able to respond in a very fast way. And that's we probably all know some. The government of the city of Boston did an extraordinary job during COVID-19. And they did it because the mayor brought together a community of interest, not just his government, but all the sort of non-traditional stakeholders. And he brought them into a daily crisis response form, a call. And they communicated every day once COVID started to arrive. They identified requirements. They identified actions. They tracked those to get the right outcomes. And they were extraordinarily capable in detecting, assessing, responding, and learning. Unexpectedly. I mean, this is a leader who pulls this together and does an extraordinary job. More often what we do is we we focus on one or two risks because we're worried about that. And so we build a Maginot line to stop the Germans from invading France. And the Germans just go around it. And, and we find ourselves brittle. You know, it's interesting because you can, you can point to many examples uh, of risk failure to confront risk appropriately for one reason or another, and, and we could go down a long list. But you mentioned Boston and how they particularly responded. You said it's one individual. Why does that happen? What made it possible for Boston to respond in such a way? Wasn't It just wasn't a happy accident. There, there was deliberate decision-making, I would assume, to make sure that all of the elements you describe as being important to handling risk, at least many of them, were addressed. That's right. And this is one of the things that's interesting. Boston's probably not dramatically different from any other big city. You've got capable people in the fire department, health department, schools, and all these kinds of things. And the problem is when they are not working in coordinated synergy. What the happy outcome in Boston was the mayor saw this early. He actually went to, to meet with a friend of his before the pandemic had actually arrived to Boston and the friend wouldn't shake his hand. 
And he said, why? Because the friend was much more focused. And that caused the mayor to get very concerned. He went, he did research and he said, we're about to get hit with this tsunami. And he started taking decisive action. And so what I would say is uh, Boston had the tools to pull together, but the lucky happy stance was they had a we they had a leader who was willing to make a tough decision. And, you know, he could have been really criticized at the beginning. He's, he canceled the uh, uh, Boston Marathon. He canceled a number of St. Patrick's Day parade in South Boston. These are big popular events. And he made tough decisions early, closed the schools, because he knew that that was right. And even if it had turned out to be not as obvious in the rearview mirror that it was important. He knew he had to do it, and he was willing to take the heat. And that 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 is to uh, to use a word leadership. I mean that that's and that's not easy to do uh, to make those tough calls, especially as a politician that depends on uh, the will of the voters. Uh, and and I you know we can and I'm not here to to uh, point fingers, but you know. At the time, our president in, in the early days, President Trump, told us it was going to go away. It was not going to be a problem. Uh, even if I'm not even and now there's some question as to whether he was aware it was going to be more of a problem. And that was just uh, uh, rhetoric. But we seem to stumble uh, in, in, in those many months and then different health agencies. There was a lot of conflicting information. And I suppose it is it is much easier in a, in a very small environment to handle the steps of risk assessment and response. Giant behemoth governments and organizations uh, that are like battleships, they're tough to turn around, aren't they, Stan? It's very tough to marshal uh, people and resources and focus it. It is. That is why I would argue not only do you need leadership, but you need the leaders to craft a narrative. You needed at the beginning of this to the United States to explain to the American people what a pandemic is, how it works. Go back in history and explain the Spanish flu, explain other cases. Tell the American people, this is what it looks like. This is how it works. This is how you defeat it. These are the necessary steps. Now, we will try to develop the vaccines as fast as we can, but we don't know how long it will take. But we had to create a narrative. And instead, what happened is we first created some contradiction and then we put politics into it. And once it became political, it became harder to get that narrative unified across the nation. Uh, question uh, that dovetails nicely into something you said a few moments ago about one of the 10 um, uh, risk control factors, meaning harnessing technology uh, that you discuss in the book. This is from a member of our audience, Stan. Do you think technology has negatively impacted our ability to properly assess risk? Are we too reliant on the machines that we have built? And I would probably suggest that it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? I think you said it right, Dan. And, and I'd say to the, the questioner, it's a great question. I think theoretically, it makes us much better positioned to assess risk because we can get more information. We can share that information very, very quickly. And we can make ourselves aware of things to include patterns from things like artificial intelligence that were not possible before. But the other side of that uh, sword is that we often don't understand vulnerabilities which we have created. We tell the story in the book of a Russian lieutenant colonel in 1983 who literally saved the world from nuclear war. 
And most of us never heard the story of Lieutenant Colonel Petrov. And what happened was he was in a early warning headquarters command center inside Soviet Union. And the computer system suddenly indicated an attack from five Minuteman missiles from the United States. Now, this was during the Reagan presidency and the Soviet Union was paranoid that Reagan was going to attack him. And so his stated responsibility was to transmit that warning to Moscow where they would make decisions on what to do, likely a counterstrike. But instead of doing that, he, he hesitated. He waited about 20 minutes because he didn't believe that the report he was seeing was correct. There weren't enough missiles to account for a major U.S. strike. Plus, it was a new computer system that he was relying on to have picked up the early warning and report it. He just had a sense that the technology was telling him something that wasn't true. If Lieutenant Colonel Petrov had reported, we might have had nuclear war. And yet by not reporting, finding out that in fact it was a technical glitch, he prevented it. He didn't even get a medal for it. He got in fact a letter of reprimand for not keeping good notes during the crisis. It's and maybe the lesson there is sometimes the best way to confront risk is not action, but inaction. Sometimes take a moment. There is a human part of it, judgment and courage that has to be brought in. We talk about technology. If you say, okay, what's the best thing for my company? The best thing for my company is to put in an automated uh, answering line for customers to call into. But I don't know how many times you've called it and you get, if you want to exit too, and you get very irritated and sometimes you hang up and go to a competitor. So how many customers do we lose if we let technology have impacts on our business that we're not really aware of? We're reliant on technology. I'm not saying it will ever not be again. But if we don't understand sort of the vulnerabilities that come with it, we can become more vulnerable yet. And I would suppose we can use, knowing that, we can use the technology and harness it in a way to better mitigate risk, not expose us to risk. And I'm, I'm reminded of what we hear so often that our nation's power grid, which is so technology-reliant, of course, may be vulnerable. Some of our banking systems are vulnerable. The technology that makes our lives so convenient and so efficient and, and in many ways, safe uh, and comfortable does expose us to greater risk. And yet I'm not sure that we are taking those risks seriously as a society and as organization, organizations. In other words, are we night and day trying to figure out how to make our power grid less susceptible to an attack? Yeah, I think we need to be. I, we need to think of ourselves as a system. And if our power grid goes out or if our banking system goes out or if any number of other things go out, our system is not going to function. Modern society is not postured to operate in a no electrical world, an electricity world. And so I think we need to say that that's a potential existential threat and respond by preparing accordingly. Uh, the book is Risk, a User's Guide, written by our guest today, General Stanley McChrystal. Uh, you know, what should, Stan, what should our relationship to risk be? Not to be fearful, I would suppose, but how, sh how should we relate to risk? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think the first thing is understand it is omnipresent and to develop in ourselves a confidence and a capability to deal with risk. I also think we need to communicate it well. 
because if you're trying, if someone asks you what is the risk to something, they may be looking for a 60% probability of this, which is often just a subjective guess on our part, or we may respond high risk, low risk, which has essentially no meaning to, to people who aren't you know, of exactly the same background. So I think our relationship to risk has to understand that threats and vulnerabilities, what, how many threats we've got and our level of vulnerability determines our risk. And we have agency over vulnerabilities. We can do something about that. You know, if someone says, I want to be in better health, I say, great, don't smoke, don't drink, get plenty of sleep, eat right, work out, do all those things we know are good. And, and you will have, be in much better health. You won't be perfect, but you'll be much better health. That's how we should think about risk. We can't do away with it. We can't live in bomb-proof shelters and, and not go about our lives. But we can create an ability to withstand a tremendous amount that comes, comes at us. And be uh, flexible and resilient against risk. Exactly. Know you're going to get hit. It's not a question of not getting hit. Go to New Orleans. It's not a question that they aren't going to see more hurricanes in the future. It's a question, as they did for the recent one, the improvements after Katrina, the pumps and levees that were improved, gave them increased resilience. And they just need to keep looking at those things for the inevitable challenges that come with weather. Stan, you know, I know you, you have, you're co-founder of a consulting uh, company now, as well as your work at Yale. Um, is, it, is it easier... Let me ask it this way. What are the specific challenges to who responds better to risk and risk assessment and man management? Corporations or governments? Which is harder to work with? Or are they equally just different? Yeah, it's interesting. Corporations have a requirement to try to maximize short-term profits. And so there's a tendency to want to wish away many risks so that you can maximize or minimize spending on certain challenges and maximize profits. Governments have a different challenge, but it's not, it's got the same DNA. Politicians don't want to spend money on long-term uh, protection of risks, you know, building let more levies, et cetera, because it's likely not to happen on their watch during while they're in office. And it's hard to get people to make big long-term improvements for the future. Government tends to have an election cycle horizon, time horizon. And so I think companies potentially could be much better because they've got more unified leadership and a, a more narrow focus. Governments, because they re reflect so many stakeholders, have the election challenge, but they've also got many people who see the state or the risk differently. And therefore, you've got a certain argument that goes on. Should we really protect ourselves against that? Is it worth it? Interesting. I, I, as you're speaking, I'm thinking of uh, one of the things that fascinates me. My entire life has been cosmology and astronomy and and the and space. And we often hear about the potential risk one day of an asteroid coming. To it. well, nobody wants it. You know, it, it, there's no money in protecting us from that now, and no government wants to spend a ton of money for something that may happen a hundred years from now. It's a, but it is you know, potentially a very real threat, but not one we think about on a daily basis or confront in any way, really. If you think about it in our lives, there are a number of things like that. We joked early about the zombie apocalypse. And it's not that we should spend a lot of time putting zombie traps, traps around our house. But what we should do is spend a lot of time that says, when any crisis of any kind rises, what am I good at? 
I need to be good at communication. I need to be good at making decisions. I need to be good at overcoming inertia. I need to have differing perspectives. I need to be good at all those things that allow me to solve any generic crisis, to respond to any generic crisis. And then you'll never be perfectly aligned. You don't know what pitch the pitcher is going to throw next. The best thing to do is be a better hitter. You know, that's a great point. Be generally prepared for risk, generically prepared for risk, and then you plug in the specifics as you're confronted with those specifics. That's actually a very useful a way, I think, for our viewers and listeners to think about risk in their own lives. And there are things you can do. You don't have to take it as just theoretical. In our book, we cover a number of exercises to do to check the assumptions your plans are based on, to do postmortems and premortems before events to really check, determine whether you've got vulnerabilities before you do something. After an event, do an after action review to identify what really happened and what you fix for next time. There are some very concrete things that we can do as a matter of habit that can make our corporations and our governments more resilient. Like Crimson Contagion, it was a great idea and a great exercise. What we of course needed to do was follow through on acting on the recommendations. Yeah learn from it and take action as a result. This is from our audience. Uh, do you think the pandemic has changed uh, people's idea of risk and notions about risk? Um, I do. In some ways, I think it may have made it um, more vulnerable because there's a certain acceptance that said, well, we can't do anything about it. COVID-19 is just going to do what COVID-19 does, and therefore we are going to accept the cost because the cost has been so high. I don't personally agree that that's the correct conclusion. I think the better conclusion is we could have done far better, and therefore we need to do more. But I think that the danger is there's going to be people that said, okay, we had a pandemic and it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. Actually, it's been pretty bad for a lot of people. So. That, that's what I'd like us to think about. Who, and this is another question from uh, uh, the audience, which I think is, is interesting because I know so many people in the military and beyond have looked up and admired your body of work. Stan, who are your leadership heroes currently or in history? Who, who do you point to as people that you have admired and learned from? Yeah. Even emulated. Yeah, of course, there are some that you, you're all lucky to have some bosses in life. I had a battalion commander once who who really sort of violated all the normal norms of what you looked and acted like. But he was just this extraordinary leader who motivated us. I go to people like Ulysses Grant. And here, Grant is a failure as a young man. He's a failure later, as we talked earlier. But when he's needed, he does some pretty amazing work. And so to me, what he does is he proves that every one of us actually can be a, a great leader. You don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be charismatic. You don't have to be um, even lucky. What you've got to do is have the self-discipline to do what you know is required. Sometimes that involves courage. Sometimes that just involves the willingness to do things that are inconvenient or difficult, things like that, because most of us know what we need to do. It's not a secret. Uh, we can look in the mirror and say we did or didn't do it. And so when I look at leaders who are eminently human, then I take 
hard for all of us because if we stand around waiting for the perfect leader, as we unfortunately, we sometimes look at George Washington and Abraham Lincoln as unblemished characters, smarter, better, more honest than the rest of us, then I think we take ourselves off the hook because we go, well, I'm not Lincoln, so I don't have to act that way. And the answer is you got to be as much like the leader Lincoln tried to be as you can. You know, as much like the best uh, team member we can be. You know, that's such a provocative uh, point, because I think it is easy to put someone on a pedestal and say, in all walks of life, and say, well, I'm not like that person. I, I, you, and, and then thereby hold yourself to a less standard. It, it's it's a, an ex- excuse that we can make for our, our for our either lack of performance or lack of doing the right thing. It's it's easy to do, but you point to people like Lincoln and George Washington, remarkable men in American and world history. But they weren't flawless; they were flawed men. And but at, at certain moments, they did exactly what was required. To your point, you you have to be ready to do make those right decisions in the right moments. Maybe there was a leader that that I studied years ago, used to ask people who had done something that he tasked them to do. They would come and they'd, he'd ask them, is this the best work you can do? And of course, that's an unnerving question. If you turn in a paper or do something and say, Dan, is that really the best you're capable of? And if so, I'll accept it. If it's not, please go back and make it the best you can do. How many times in life would I have had to take something back and do it again? Right. And the the truth of it, the truth is, it's almost always not the best we can do. There's we could always do a little bit better. You, you know, let let's before we uh, move forward to to end the program with a couple of questions that I'd like to get to. I want to go back to the ten risk control factors you mentioned: communication, leadership. Uh, there and they're really detailed beautifully in the book. Are there? Give me your top three. I know they're all important, but but as a starting point, what what do you think? organizations and individuals should focus on first? I would imagine communication, number one. Am I right? Yeah, I think communication's the essential. If you don't have communication, you're dead in the water. I would say leadership is the next most important because it brings the rest together. Now, I think narrative because it ties people into common action. It gives you a common understanding of what you are and what you're doing. But the one I'd highlight right now is diversity. And the reason I highlight it is because we tend to think of diversity as genders or races or or uh, religions represented equally. That's not how I look at it. Equality of opportunity is a legal right and a moral right, and it's a good thing and we should do it. Diversity is different. Diversity is actually bringing different perspectives into the room so that you close your blind spots. You can have a room full of all African-American females and you may have diversity or you may not. It's based on what their experience is, what perspectives they bring. So I think we've got to make sure that we don't take a superficial look at it. You've got to bring people in who will pressure test your ideas identify where your flaws and blind spots are and help you fix them. I like that phrase pressure test because sometimes it can be very difficult to expose yourself to that pressure test and expose yourself to the, that different idea. And I, and, and, you know, everybody wants somebody to agree with them, but you need somebody in the room who doesn't. And, And in this 
one of the things that maybe you'd like to comment on this, we're such in so many ways, we're uh, still a divided country uh, politically and emotionally and COVID uh, that that unification that sort of seemed to happen those first few months of the pandemic as we faced it together gave way later to some uh, divisiveness and and, uh, politicizing of the whole thing. Our so much of our culture now, because of our various media exposures, people tend it's an echo chamber for a lot of people. We tend to hear, read what people who agree with us, listen to people who agree with us, and not really uh, engage in opposing viewpoints. How big a problem is that from a leadership standpoint and from a risk management standpoint? Yeah, it, it's almost an existential problem. I first came to the realization when we were fighting Al-Qaeda in Iraq in a really vicious war that they weren't necessarily evil. They had a different life journey than I did, different religion, different background. And with that same set of experiences, I likely would have reached the same conclusions they did. Mm. They were courageous. They were committed to their cause. So, I, I mean, I could make an argument. They were good people, as good as us. Just I disagreed with their viewpoint. Now, if we go to January 6th and we say the people who stormed the Capitol, I was very much opposed to what they did, but I'm not prepared to say that they were stupid and I'm not prepared to say that they were malintentioned. I actually think it was likely a lot of good people who did what they thought was right. I just happened to think to disagree with it. Now, that should bring us into question, if good people can do things we strongly disagree with, how does that happen? And this is where it gets into how we inform ourselves, that the media we get, the social media that affects us, in many cases, misinformation and disinformation. Because the reality is anyone who's given information that is incorrect, and they that's what they affected, they're going to act on that. And, and so we, we would all do the same. And so I think we've got to really look systemically. And instead of just saying they are evil, we got to say, what's happening here? How do we improve things so that we have something of a more balanced view of what America needs? Hmm. Uh, Well said. Thank you, Stan. This is from the audience. After spending so many years in the Army, what is the one leadership characteristic that you learned and helped you the most along the way. I know it's hard to pinpoint one, but what would you do? Self-discipline, because, you know, empathy is important. All the other things are important, but you have to have the self-discipline to do what you know is right. Again, most of us know what we should do as leaders, and yet we we let lapse. We are rude to someone. We are not as focused as we are. So if we can make ourselves disciplined enough to do what we know is right, We'll be pretty good. We may not be perfect, but we'll be pretty good. Self-discipline. Another, I want to get a few last questions in from the audience so I make sure we respond to them, Stan. What should we do to better and uh, better support our service members and their families? You know, it's, it always strikes me, and I've, I've commented with my family many, many, many times when we're enjoying Thanksgiving dinner here at home or Christmas, thinking about those men and women in Afghanistan or Iraq uh, when when a wars like that go on for such a long period of time, it's easy here on the home front to sort of forget that they're over there still. Yeah, I think the thing is, remember, they are us. They are there 
from us. They are part of our population at Winford because we asked them to. And so they are doing something. And I don't think we need to treat every service member as a hero or as, as anything like that. We just need to say they are good Americans doing what needed to be done. And we should thank them for that. Now, there are a lot of other people in society who do tough jobs the same way. We should thank them as well. But remember, they're us. They're not albino unicorns that we see once a year. They are from us, of us. And when they leave the service, we need to put our arms around them and bring them into our part of society. And welcome them home. Uh, Personal question from the audience. What made you join the Army and make that your career? Yeah. My father was a soldier. My father's father was a soldier. My four brothers were soldiers. My sister married a soldier. I married the daughter of a soldier. Her three brothers are soldiers. So what am I going to do? No, in all seriousness, I wanted to be my father. He was my hero. I mean, he's passed now, but still is. And so I thought that I would enjoy trying to be as much like him as I could. And it turned out that I did enjoy it, fortunately. Well, I, I, on behalf of everyone listening to thank you for your service and all you've done and your family has done for the country. Uh, I think you had no choice given your family background. <laughs> you couldn't go be a dentist. <laughs> You'd be the black sheep of the family. But 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 what a proud tradition. I know you I know you're proud of that tradition of service to this country as a family. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to wrap up here, but I want to ask one last question regarding risk. Um, Stan, what this is the cliched question, but what keeps you up at night? You have been on the front lines of risk in this country in many fronts for many years. What do you worry most about for our country in terms of managing, identifying and managing risk? Typically, I, I believe that the United States can solve any problem that it wants to. We've got the capacity, we've got the talent, we've got the resources. Right now, we're in a period of political dysfunction where we can't seem to solve any problems. So it's the ability to get things done. That's what scares me. As long as we can't coordinate and bring ourselves into a decision and action, we're vulnerable. And so I think that's the near-term risk to the United States. Do you believe that we will move past this moment and, and, and be our better selves in that sense? I believe that we will. I don't know what's going to cause it in the near term. I believe that we'll have to, but I don't see a, a forcing function right away. I hope we don't see a, a national calamity like a world war or something that, that does that. But yes, 20, 30 years from now, I think we'll be through this, but I hope it's easier rather than harder. Uh, General Stanley McChrystal, you've just been wonderful to spend this time with us. Uh, just a terrific conversation. And I can't thank you enough, Stan. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. Our thanks to General Stanley McChrystal, author of Risk, a user's guide. And I really do encourage you to pick up a copy of General McChrystal's new book. Uh, you can get it wherever you buy books. It's well worth the read on a number of levels. Fascinating history lessons, uh, but also some very practical tips that I think we can all use in our individual and organizational lives. Uh, if you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club and our efforts, please visit commonwealthclub.org. Stand again. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Dan. I'm Dan Ashley. Thank you for your time, all of you watching and listening. See you next time. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. 
go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.